and welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in. Coming back to the show, first-time listeners finding the show, welcome aboard. If you are watching this on Counterpunch Plus, well then, I really appreciate you supporting Counterpunch. Uh, if you are just listening to the audio, then please consider getting a subscription to Counterpunch Plus. Our subscriber section is what keeps us going. It's what keeps the lights on. We've been doing it for, more, for well, almost 30 years now, and uh, we plan on having a lot more years in the future. Support us with the subscription and, uh, well, you know what to do. Okay, uh, we also like to support our uh, favorite journalists and activists and so forth. That's something Counterpunch has done for a long, long time. And one of our favorites is with me today is the great, the incomparable, is he iconic? We'll find out. Barrett Brown is with us. Barrett is an award-winning journalist, an activist, an author, a muckraker. Uh, he is on Twitter, at Barrett B. And most importantly, he has a forthcoming memoir, which is really going to be an exciting read that I highly recommend for everybody once it's available. And that is My Glorious Defeats by Barrett Brown. Barrett, welcome back to Counterpunch, dude. Thank you for having me. I, just, I want to apologize in advance. Uh, we have my parrot with us today here. And the parrot will, throughout the uh, interview, uh, engage in shenanigans that may or may not be distracting, but I may, hopefully be distracting in a fun way. I may ask the parrot some questions as well. We'll find out. Is, I'm assuming very open, very he, I, assume, I assume his name is Parrot Brown? Uh, that would be a good one. Uh, no, his name is Friedel, which is <laughs> the name of my girlfriend's Pakistani... No, her mom's friend's boarding school friend in Pakistan. Or something. It's a, it's a half Pakistani parrot, basically. <laughs> Very good. All right, Barrett. I want to talk about a bunch of a bunch of things that have happened really over the course of about the last twelve to fifteen years or so. Um, and you are really a primary source because of your involvement in a lot of different things. So let's rewind, if we could, to help uh, our listeners and or viewers get into uh, this timeline. Bring us back to. 2010 or so, and an uprising which uh, begins in Tunisia, the very first uh, elements of what would come to be called the Arab Spring. And so, Barrett, how did you become connected with the protest movement there and with uh, the hacker group Anonymous? I had written some articles, uh, mostly for Huffington Post, also for Skeptical Inquirer, where I used to be a columnist, uh, about Anonymous throughout 2010. Uh, I'd, I'd followed the subculture uh, for a number of years that came out of 4chan. Uh, and it, d during its phase, when it was engaging in these very novel, silly raids on other internet, you know, mediums. Um, the raids had been very well organized, you know, sort of, uh, they had been organized in a emergent kind of fashion. Uh, it brought together people with different tactics, knowledge, knowledge skills. Uh, it was able to, to make determinations very quickly. Uh, and I thought that was astounding. It turns out, you know, later on, we now know that the uh, USMC also found it quite astounding. And there's, there are, there's literature within the military, at least of, of the US and definitely of other countries, where they were already looking at these dynamics, looking at these, uh, these, the, 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 the gaming culture, the, the emergent forum culture, uh, looking at them as potential new weapons, which they were. Uh, and so a number of us back then had recognized this, this new reality that these things were going to be important. Uh, and so I'd written some articles about, kind of to that effect uh, and explained that Anonymous itself, while, you know, uh, will accomplish some huge things in the years to come, but that more to the point, other things like Anonymous will emerge. Uh, absolutely. There's no, there's no, no holding it back uh, in different contexts. And it, these emergent, you know, collective collaborative actions uh, that would have been impossible or inconceivable 20 years ago will have a increasingly vast effect on information warfare, on, on cultural change, political cultural change. Uh, and in, in the interim, we'll be able to wage a degree of war against institutions uh, using not just hacking, not just these conventional military, you know, cyber spectrum warfare tactics that we that are now much more commonplace but also using information warfare, information operations uh, in, in a manner that was you know, previously only really available to uh, certain private institutions and, of course, governments. So that I was reached out to by a couple of people who had been in charge, as you, if you will, 
of some of the anonymous infrastructure, as in they had helped to put together the Bill, the, the Bill Famous Chanology campaign against social Scientology a couple of years back. Uh, they had read my articles and thought they were pretty ambitious uh, in terms of what I was thinking about for anonymous, even ambitious to them. These are people who had, you know, already engaged in a attack on, on Australia, you know, uh, and spoke with them for over the course of the year. And then when the Tunisian revolution began, uh, it was known that, you know, I had a particular interest in, you know, a lineal, a lineal warfare. Um, and that I had a particular background that was most of them did not have, which, you know, involved media connections, uh, connections to reporters who were like me subversives. And so, I put some of those resources to bear uh, in the early days of January 2011 uh, to the, the Tunisian nationals and Tunisian exiles in particular who were operating out of this, uh, one of these anonymous venues, uh, a non-ops, the IRC server. This is a server that, you know, frequented by about 100, 150 people. Uh, and where a lot of the things you, you heard back then that, you know, the RGB2 anonymous tended to be organized and launched from that server. So. From there on, uh, I was I was I was very quickly involved, you know, directly and, and happily, and uh, you know, uh, ideologically tied with anonymous uh, or with the section of anonymous that was doing these things, and so the Arab Spring spread, uh, and then from there, uh, my life was kind of the the, the course was sealed uh, because we caught a number of people spying on us, spying on our aid programs to uh, to Egyptians and to Tunisians, and one of those people were it was Aaron Barr. A former Air Force intelligence, oh, sorry, Navy intelligence uh, man, um, who was now CEO of a one of these private intelligence contracting firms that have popped up since 9/11. This one was called HP Gary Federal, owned by HP Gary, uh, and and it turned out they had been spying on us, uh, taking notes uh, that I, I was included in, you know, notes about us doing things like helping to to provide uh, uh, communications options for Egyptians when the internet was shut down in Egypt. And Aaron Barr went to a journalist, on, this is about uh, February 4th, 2011, uh, Arab swing, swing is in full spring, uh, full swing, uh, you know, we're doing interviews at Al Jazeera, we're, we're coordinating with, with, with uh, dissidents all the middle, the middle, uh, middle East, you know, we're doing what we think is important and what we, what we think anyone would support given the democratic aspirations of the people we're working with. And Aaron Barr goes to this report at Financial Times. Uh, <clears throat> um, a man I despise, but whose name I've suddenly forgotten, which is not like me. Fuck is his name. Uh, oh, Joseph Min. There we go. Goes to Joseph Min and has him do a puff piece article in Financial Times about how Aaron Barr and his company has been using this new proprietary technique to not only spy on us in our uh, internet relay chat server, where we're doing all this Arab Spring stuff, uh, but to identify anonymous participants based on their login times. It was a technique that didn't actually work, uh, as it turns out. But, uh, you know, was, was, was in there spying on us and was going to meet with the FBI very soon. And so he got hacked uh, by several people of my acquaintance who were hackers, unlike me. Uh, they went into his company, H.P. Gary Federal, stole uh, and his parent company to stole his emails, and it very quickly uh, it 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 came about that uh, aside from the stuff they were doing towards us uh, in the midst of our pro democracy operations, uh, he was involved with Palantir and a few other firms in this much more nefarious uh, scheme to go after dissident journalists uh, on behalf of the DOJ, <clears throat> on behalf of Bank of America on behalf of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, and that they were going to use techniques that in many cases were plainly illegal. Uh, things that, in fact, that have been uh, anonymous anonymous participants have been prosecuted for even planning. And just, uh, Barrett, real quick, real quick, just to interject for listeners, when you're, when yeah. you're talking about H.B. Gary, you're talking about private Mil contractors that work with the military, similar to like Bose Allen Hamilton, where Ed Snowden yes. worked, w which was involved in very similar kinds of things. So when we're talking about H.P. Gary, we're yep. all really talking about a, a vast array of these similar exactly. type of companies. Yes. Yeah, this is a huge problem. And, and Bose Allen Hamilton incidentally turned out to also have been involved peripherally in the same operation that we uncovered. Uh, through the hack of those emails. And just really quickly also, just so that everyone has their 
proper reference points, Palantir being the company founded by Peter Thiel, the billionaire who is closely connected to Trump and connected to very nefarious circles. Exactly. Yep. And so uh, what we found them doing, uh, these firms back then in 2011, uh, it it was sufficiently documented and sufficiently horrendous that it got major press coverage uh, over the next few weeks. And in fact, Congress uh, started to investigate uh, under Hank Johnson, uh, Democrat of Georgia. Uh, But that that investigation into the DOJ and its role in this was shut down uh, by Lamar Smith, a Republican of Texas, uh, who said the DOJ should be the one to investigate. Well, of course, the DOJ was involved, so they were not in a hurry to investigate. And of course, no no such investigation uh, ever began. Instead, the DOJ began to investigate us, those of us uh, who had unveiled the scheme that the DOJ was involved in. And so that was the beginning of the end for us in terms of each of us individually having regular life from that point on. Um, So yeah, so that's how I got involved and that's how I stayed involved. This H.P. Gary thing, these intelligence contractors, the FBI, the FBI cooperators we kept discovering, uh, the the, the methods they used, uh, you know, sort of carte blanche against us and those who were identified as working with us was all very extensive, all very distressing. And to some extent, we got the press to pay attention to that as well. Uh, sometimes we fell short with that. Um, and of course, I went to prison. Uh, after, you know, after about a year, they were able to figure out, you know, something to charge me with um, that kept changing with charges that had dropped some and reapply others. And I did four years, got out and uh, came out to crazy land where everyone was now, was now even... Uh, in America had gone through this 2016 election that seems to have just broken everybody's brain, um, just sort of turned everybody back into disingenuous 1938, like British people where, where, you know, nothing is true. Everything is permitted. Uh, and yeah. And so I've just been k- kicking it ever since. So let's rewind, let's rewind back a little bit. Take us, taking us back to 2011, you get connected with Anonymous, with the work that's going on to support the revolution in Tunisia. And then how does WikiLeaks come into the picture? Because of course, WikiLeaks emerges around the same time. I I don't think WikiLeaks needs any introduction for our listeners. So how did you get connected with WikiLeaks and ultimately Assange? WikiLeaks, even, be- even before I got involved with Anonymous, uh, I had been very interested in WikiLeaks. Uh, I-, I did some of the early, you know, advocacy for WikiLeaks uh, back in early 2010. Uh, went on a couple different programs, uh, like Anti-War with uh, Scott Horton and that kind of thing, to discuss, sorry, because I was one of the few, you know, proxies they had back then, or in those early days. Um, it was still not well known, uh, but when the... Uh, the collateral murder video came out, you know, suddenly there was attention. Uh, Assange was suddenly being chased around by state department officials around Iceland or something. And so, <clears throat> so there was more of a need for people to like myself to come out and advocate for WikiLeaks, explain WikiLeaks, explain why WikiLeaks uh, in and of itself and what it represented was a great potential uh, alternative to, you know, having a bunch of states that engage in secrecy uh, defended by, illegality and uh, so forth. So, but beyond that, WikiLeaks also played a role in the Tunisian revolution. Uh, just like with us, it's hard to say how large of a role, um, but it did play, have some uh, connection to it by virtue of the State Department cables that had been released uh, in, the, in the months prior. Uh, some of those cables discussed the Ben Ali regime, um, which was the, the dictatorship that Tunisia had been under for the past 20 years. And although, of course, Tunisians you know, were sophisticated enough to know about the degree of the corruption of that regime, um, just as always, sometimes it takes a focus. It takes, it takes an item of focus or refocus to prompt you know, action. Or, you know, uh, and some of the documents that came out, I think, were, were particularly egregious and uh, WikiLeaks, I mean, Tunisia as a result, uh, I think banned WikiLeaks from the country. I think this is when, was it, it must have been late, late December, um, or early December uh, 2010, or sorry, uh, 10 they did this, yeah. And so that's that's the connection there. Uh, and beyond that, Anonymous, the people of Anonymous I worked with had just been over the past few months uh, defending WikiLeaks uh, from the economic embargo that PayPal MasterCard and Visa had kind of all simultaneously, coincidentally, decided to place on WikiLeaks. Uh, and uh, 
so there had been some intertwining there. Uh, and, and on top of that, there was, there was another operation that some of the same anonymous uh, participants were involved in to try to uh, promote attention to the actual documents that WikiLeaks was putting out. Uh, because these things, of course, always get lost in the fog, especially when we're dealing with lazy reporters and so forth. So, so there was already, I mean, obviously there was an overlap ideologically and tactically between people who, you know, were into anonymous, people who were into WikiLeaks. It was a very natural, um, a natural de facto alliance uh, that kind of firmed up over time. And uh, that same alliance would, would, would come to impact the indictments uh, against Assange uh, later on. And it would come to impact uh, some of us being arrested or and or investigated and or uh, targeted by things like Bank of America and so forth. Um, so, yeah, so, so there was always, <clears throat> in those days, uh, there was a strong connection and affinity between WikiLeaks and, and, and the portion of Anonymous I worked with. That's right, Friedel. It was Those are the golden days back when everyone loved, still liked each other. Um, so, yeah, and, and that, of course, that, that relationship deteriorated in many ways, um, especially between me and, and WikiLeaks. Uh, years later, after I got out and, and came to learn some of the things that... Uh, had been done that were co- directly contrary to the principles WikiLeaks uh, were su- was supposed to be advancing. And so there's two kinds of people in this movement. Um, there's those, well, let's say there's two, there's two sets of kinds of people in this movement. There are those who support it and they have Twitter accounts and that's great. Uh, and there's those who support it uh, and they do it more actively and they, and they have a bit more knowledge about what's actually going on. Uh, they, they make it their business to know. They have skin in the game. They have to know. They can't live in fantasy land. Uh, and then the other two sets of people in this movement uh, are those who want to know. They, they, they want to make sure that the movement isn't just claiming to have ideals, uh, claiming to be a, a real alternative to the criminalized institutions we're up against. Uh, they want to make sure that is the case. And it, to the extent that we, are, we fail in our ideals, that we fall short, or engage in deception against the same public we're trying to serve, they want to find that out so we can stop it. And the other portion, the other side of that, is those uh, who lack that capacity, morally, intellectually, whatever, and it doesn't matter. And uh, they've chosen their Stalin, or their their you know their Trump, or their you know Assange, and that is how it is. Um, and so obviously I fell into the rabble rousing uh, crowd, you know, of, of that division. Uh, and that that's another sort of big trajectory of the last 10 years is that I've gotten in lots of conflicts with people who, you know, um, were involved in this movements, but who I saw as not committed to the movement itself and more committed to individuals. I want to spend some time talking about some individuals, not so much because I care about them as people, but uh, to talk about uh, the roles that they play and why why they play important roles. But uh, before we before we talk about that, I want to just uh, build out a little bit more for people to understand what it is that you stumbled across with this whole H.B. Gary thing, because it wasn't just that H.B. Gary was a private contractor that was surveilling you guys and was you know dealing with the State Department department or the the justice department or whomever right it was that they were at the forefront of developing some of the tools that have now become standard practice for u.s misinformation disinformation warfare everything from sock puppet social media accounts to manipulation of followers to all kinds of different things right and you sort of uncovered a lot of that really, really early on. And so can you talk a little bit about some of those things that you uncovered and maybe most importantly or most relevant, how they have been employed since then? Yes. So H.B. Gary uh, in particular. Uh, okay, so, so the Team Themis uh, uh, consortium conspiracy, uh, as it was called, not, as, as they called it internally and as the press began to call it, uh, involved H.P. Gary, Palantir, Endgame Systems, and a company called Barico, <clears throat> all getting together and serving as a sort of black ops concierge service for powerful entities, uh, particularly particularly powerful entities that gets free reign uh, to engage in illegal conduct by the DOJ, which is you know, the DOJ itself is a concierge service for for certain kinds of powerful entities that can do things that you and I can't. Uh, the things that that the 
the services that Team Themis would provide and was was writing reports on how they would provide them to individual clients like Bank of America uh, and Chamber of Commerce was to go after their enemies, go after their entirely legal civic enemies. So labor unions that U.S. Chamber of Commerce wanted to weaken. Uh, Team Themis was going to investigate individual labor union leaders, investigate their families and their children. Uh, Aaron Barr of H.B. Gary demonstrated this to their potential employers by going and looking up someone's son uh, and the family and, and sent, to our, sent an email to uh, a guy at Booz Allen Hamilton, who was, or sorry, at, uh, at uh, Huntington Williams, which is a major lobbyist law firm that was helping to broker this deal. Sent an email saying, okay, yeah, this, so this guy, he goes to a Jewish church. <laughs> That's the term he used, Jewish church. It's one of my favorite part of the emails. Um, and yes, here's his son. Here's what his son goes to school and blah, blah. And uh, so they were going to be digging up dirt on people's families or, you know, not just dirt, but also probably making it up in some cases uh, in order to put pressure on individuals uh, or discredit individuals. They were separately going to be uh, uh, going undercover uh, in different groups, like, say, uh, Stop the, Stop the uh, Chamber, which is an entirely legitimate, very mainstream uh, organization that, that's pro-union and opposes the uh, Chamber of Commerce uh, in Congress, opposes their legislative priorities. They were going to give them fake documents, supposedly from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, and then have them run with those documents, give them to the press, you know, uh, and then point out that those documents were fake and accuse Stop the Chamber of faking the documents, which is akin to setting someone up for fraud. That's one of the specific things that they wrote about, that they themselves wrote, here's what we're going to do in exchange for $200,000 a month. Um, they were going to, on the other end, for Bank of America, which was the other big prospective client that the DOJ had sent to Balance or H.B. Gary and them, uh, they, were going, they were going to go after WikiLeaks. They were going to go after journalists in the U.S. and elsewhere, including at the New York Times, including Glenn Greenwald who were seen as, uh, you know, uh, uh, productively supportive of WikiLeaks. And they were going to, uh, quote, uh, force them to choose bet- uh, cause over career, unquote. Uh, Aaron Barr actually went specifically into how people like Glenn Greenwald, if you put pressure on them, you know, they'll, they'll give the right deals. Back then, we thought that was absurd. Uh you know, back when, you know, Greenwald used to be a lot of our heroes and our, our hero, um, definitely mine. And it would have been, well, anyway, let me be addressing. Um, anyway, so there's a number of things that, that were serious enough uh, and subversive enough to democracy and dangerous enough. If you, if you think about companies being able to do this for the powerful against those who serve as a check on the powerful uh, behind the scenes using tech military expertise in conjunction with the intelligence community. Uh, these kinds of techniques that, you know, when when we happen to reveal them through, through a series of chances involving anonymous and hacking and, and you know, self-promotion in the Financial Times, this, this weird scenario that allowed us to get this glimpse into this sector and into this sector's connections to the DOJ and Pentagon and all that. Uh, you know, there was this great period of a month in which people got to learn about this and, and the press got to learn about this. And, and what the implications were. And then they just forgot about it over time. And, but, but what the specifics were that we came across that ended up being extremely important, uh, extremely deleterious to democracy in the U.S. and elsewhere, were, as you mentioned, social media bots, uh, which, which uh, H.P. Gary, for instance, uh, had been one of the firms to, uh, <coughs> to um, bid on when the Pentagon was uh, actually it was Air Force uh, was asking for tech, you know, a, a new iteration of software that will, would allow airmen to run these fake online personas, uh, fake online people that would you know, be on Twitter or Facebook or whatever and would influence conversations or deter them or they would infiltrate groups and they would do so using uh, not just human operators, not just a human operator having to sit here uh, running 10 bots, 10 personas, but with this very advanced software that helps them to, to, to remember conversations, uh, helps them to, uh, you know, it's like a software suite for someone running like 20 sock puppets that makes it vastly more automated and vastly more effective and vastly more difficult to detect. Uh, that scared me a great deal. Um, 
you know, and we, we found patents, uh, you know, after about, you know, during, during this investigation, after the first stuff we found in those stolen emails came out, we continued, we continued to do research, uh, found patents that US, U.S. military and IBM had uh, kind of showing how these worked, how advanced they were, how nuanced. Uh, we found other firms that have been created just to provide these, this same service, these, these bots. Uh, and between that and the fact that, you know, this Team Themis conspiracy itself had gone, you know, kind of gone nowhere. There'd been no repercussions. Palantir pretended to fire somebody and then and then promoted them after everybody stopped paying attention. Uh, it looks to me like things were going to get vastly, vastly worse in this in this country and in the West, because they had found technologies, people, companies, methodologies that can be used to subvert democracy, to discredit and harass. Uh, any journalists or activists who serve as a check on, on their, uh, on their uh, advances, uh, they had found the magic formula to ensure that they would never be uh, subjects to consequences for the vast amount of terrible things they were now going to do. And those things that they did were now going to do, that they did, that they got away with, again, was interfering in the 2016 election, uh, as Palantir did. Uh, as we were caught doing again uh, with Cambridge Analytica and Facebook, and uh, that they were caught again in 2016, and uh, that went away again. And now those companies are even more powerful. They they are they are uh, they're not even reported on uh, in the way you might expect them to be based on the two separate major scandals in which they've been caught uh, subverting democracy in the most insidious ways possible. Uh, in a way that's allowed Trump to rise. Uh, there's still, still average article on Palantir is still about, oh, an IPO might be offered, blah, blah, or, you know, oh, they're, you know, is this, is Palantir making good use of its whatever, you know, it's, it, that kind of thing. Uh, and that's, quite frankly, they're, they're seeing the degree of that and seeing which of the, of the uh, journalists who were responsible for Palantir, Stratford, these firms that dealt with Michael Flynn back in the day, all of them getting away with it and, and becoming uh, more influential. Uh, seeing those same journalists uh, continue to rise within the, within the media, uh, that's been the other factor that has uh, basically uh, caused me to quit. Uh, you know, in these last few months, to, to just give up because it's too much. Um, before we take a break, which we need to do, I just want to stress the importance of the point that you're making here, because this is not a discrete historical episode. We're not talking about the introduction of some technology 12 years ago that uh, just went away, right? What you're talking about is having a glimpse early on in some of the tools that have built out and sort of created this extraordinarily toxic and completely manufactured bullshit media, social media ecosystem that exists where there's dozens, hundreds of people with tens of thousands of followers on social media who don't know anything about anything, who have no reason to have those kind of followings. And it really, I think what you were exposing 10 years ago illustrated sort of, or maybe gave us a glimpse into the hellscape that we live in now. Yeah, and Aaron, people like Aaron Schwartz uh, and Michael Hastings, uh, both as well, like warned of different aspects of this. Uh, you know, Michael Hastings, you know, being a more prominent journalist, you know, wrote his, his last articles were about these subjects, and about and his last article also was about my my criminal case, which has already begun. I was already in prison at that time uh, before he died. And then Aaron Schwartz, you know, he he was one of the ones talking about the uh, trap wire and some of the technologies and companies that Cubic owned. Uh, that at that time, a lot of Supposedly grown-up press people were saying, "Oh, this is some kind of silly." People probably don't remember this trapwire thing. Basically, there was, you know, it, it, it was one of the things that came out of the strap for emails. Um, one of these intelligence contracting companies uh, involving facial recognition, <clears throat> which have since become become a tool of genocide. You know, and, uh, increasingly as expected. Anyway, people like Aaron Schwartz, who who knew what he was talking about, obviously had the expertise was writing and speaking about this stuff back then, right around the time he was getting raided as well by the FBI. And that was all kind of drowned out by other people in the uh, public eye, uh, you know, including the, the including uh, a fellow who's since gone on to become the uh, editor-in-chief of the Daily Beast, Noah Schachtman, who back then was saying, well, Cubic sent out a press release claiming they don't own this company. So so at least someone's being straightforward here. That was basically, that was basically the last sentence of his, his article on, on Trapwire. 
So the people who knew what they're talking about were silenced. I mean, were, 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 were spoken over and then eventually silenced by the means. Uh, and that's the other end of this, the other part of this that is a little bit uh, unnerving in retrospect. Um, there, there's, there's two issues here. They're very intertwined. One is uh, what already exists in the public space that is making democracy vastly more difficult than it already was and how much worse will it get? And the other end is, do we have a media structure that is capable of, of even remembering the things that have already come out about this and what, what they've been caused to do, what the consequences have been, much less uh, uh, consistently investigating, discovering new versions of this? And the answer is no, we don't. And part of the reason for that is that some of the very people who have the most to lose from these things being revisited have quite unaccountably gained more and more in, uh, influence at the major outlets that determine the national narrative. Uh, and when I, you know, when I when I talk about journalists who you know assisted Palantir, or assisted Stratfor, or assisted HP Gary, I'm not talking about you know because they didn't write mean things about them that I wanted to. What I'm saying is companies that covered for them, that had secret deals with these companies. Uh, that, you know, in some cases had secret deals with these firms right before they got caught going after other journalists for money uh, and then have thereafter continued to uh, to um, hold water for them publicly uh, at the Washington Post and New York Times, that kind of thing. You know? Let's let's start talking through some of those specifics, um, preferably without any potential libel. <laughs> lawsuits if possible. No, I'm kidding. Um, let's talk through about some of those individuals. And preferably, I would also like to ask about uh, something that uh, you did when you came out of prison, a, a video that you released that I thought was really enlightening. So uh, let's take a quick break. On the other side of the break, we'll continue with Barrett Brown. You're listening to Counterpunch. We'll be right back. Life is a debt that must someday be
And we are back chatting with Barrett Brown. Make sure that you put on your radar his forthcoming memoir, My Glorious Defeats. Uh, Barrett is an interesting storyteller, and he's got a lot of very interesting stories to share. Um, so, Barrett, I want to talk a little bit about um, a video a video that you did not that long ago now um, where you burned a very uh, prestigious award that you received. Uh, you want to talk a little bit about what award it was, why you burned it, and obviously, specifically, what are the real political uh, motivations behind that? Because I think this is an important entry point for us to talk about, uh, you know, the, the utter failures, corruption, incompetence, and otherwise of the press, both mainstream and so-called alternative press. Certainly. So when I was still in prison... Uh, I started writing a column that became very popular, a monthly prison column called the Barrett Brown Review of Arts and Letters in Prison. I uh, wrote that for uh, my that magazine in Dallas at first, and then that got picked up by The Intercept uh, when The Intercept came into existence. Uh, Grimwald, of course, was you know knew me and uh, hired me to write this column for them. Uh, at that point, I did not know much about Pierre Omidyar uh, and his role in... Uh, Funding the Intercept, Pierre Omidyar is one of the one of the uh, eBay, uh, PayPal, you know, billionaires who turns out to have interesting connections to the intelligence community. Uh, anyway, so I wrote the column for the Intercept. Uh, it was very popular. I won the National Magazine Award for it uh, for columns and commentary. In fact, I, I found out I won the award when I got out of the shoe one time. I was being held in the hole and uh, got out and and uh, learned I'd won that. Uh, so, upon getting out of prison, uh, a number of things started to become clear. Uh, some right off the bat, some took, took a year or two. Uh, among those things was that, you know, WikiLeaks had not done, had not pursued its mission in the kind of way that it had been, had been sort of, uh, WikiLeaks' charter of transparency and so forth and of not lying to the public, I guess that's, that should be an implied part of the charter that one expects, uh, had not been fulfilled. Um, and at the same time, uh, The Intercept um, had hired people who I knew quite well uh, and who I gradually learned, learned more about uh, their roles in these had been involved not just in disrupting and going after uh, whistleblowers and activists uh, on mind of things, but me, my, me personally, sometimes in conjunction with FBI cooperators, known FBI cooperators who have gone on stage and bragged about their FBI cooperation status. I say that just so everyone knows that there's no dispute here over the facts. Um, among those people was Sam Biddle, who used to write for Gawker Gizmodo back in the day and who actually celebrated uh, my sentencing, which is a rare, unusual thing to do back then. Uh, he was work working for The Intercept. Not only was he working for The Intercept, he was among several Intercept employees who were given access to the Reality Winner documents before Reality Winner was arrested. And his byline is on that story The Intercept did on Reality Winner's documents and all that. And uh, there was obviously no reason why someone like Sam Biddle, given his very easily discoverable history dealing with the FBI, and putting out, uh, I mean, when I say dealing with the FBI in this case, uh, he wrote an article called, for instance, called This is What Happens When Anonymous Tries to Destroy You. And the point of the article is that Anonymous is this terrible uh, terrorist thing that is really mean uh, to people and just tries to destroy you. But the contents of the article, uh, bizarrely enough, uh, were entirely of a, uh, the, the incidents related in the article were all things that FBI collaborators working against Anonymous, had done to each other. Uh, in one case, one of the instances, and, this is, and it's all just like, none of it's like real things. It's all like, you know, saying, hi, you should kill yourself, like blah, blah, you know, on Twitter. Uh, one of the examples of the people in this article titled, Here's What Anonymous Does, was one of the people working for H.B. Gary uh, and, and for the FBI's FBI collaborator and who got into a dispute with his other handlers, FBI collaborator. It's, there's a bunch of bizarre drama among the FBI collaborators. And this was an article filled with that, filling, detailing that drama, but attributing it like entirely falsely to anonymous. 
So that's kind of that's the kind of article that came out like you know right after we were raided in many cases back like after May of 2012. Like that's the article that a lot of people in the media read right before we're all about to go to jail and are going to need like people the you know the media to understand what's going on here, what's at stake. Uh, he's working for the Intercept and he's handling whistleblower documents and oh my God, you know who who, who could have known it? Uh, the NSA got their hands on those originals that Reality Winner sent in. And the NSA was it more able was was more easily able to determine who reality winner was and arrest her and give her more prison time than people who commit real crimes. And that's symbiotal, and, and that's something that the Intercept, I, I I would say, in a more perfect world, should not have tolerated, given what the Intercept was supposed to be. Uh, beyond symbiotal, their first editor was John Cook, who used to be at Gawker as well. John Cook worked with some of the exact same FBI uh, cooperators. Uh, who, uh, just like the ones Biddle worked with in some cases, were in the paid service of H.B. Gary, the firm that we had exposed for its crimes against journalists and activists. Um, that's, oh, let's see, who else? Oh, one of the other guys the real, uh, who did, uh, one of the people on the byline of the reality winner story, another person that the Intercept hired for reasons I can't even come close to fucking imagining, uh, was, um, I can't remember his name, but he went on in 2020, yeah, the end of 2020, uh, to become a spokesperson for the NYPD. This is an Intercept employee. So, that's a portion of the grievances that me and other whistleblowers like John Kiriakou have with the Intercept. Uh, and that and that a reality winner has with the intercept. You know, we, there was a conference in Berlin that uh, some of us participated in a, few, a couple months ago, where we kind of went into this and went into which uh, which journalists at the New York Times, which ones at the Intercept, uh, are known uh, collaborators with the state. Uh, and unfortunately, whistleblowers, you know, uh, the the press is 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 quite happy to listen if it's something you know. If it's a convenient story about maybe something in the government, maybe they're just less interested in discussing it when it's one of their friends in the press who's done something that's so egregious he can't be defended. It's not a controversy. It's an unambiguous, like you know, atrocity. In those cases, uh, we don't get listens to, and that's why these these people, for the most part, uh, and there's many more, uh, are still in a position where they can assist. Firms like Stratford and Palantir and the FBI and all that in uh, in managing uh, the public understanding, public consciousness regarding these issues uh, over the years to come. So that that's why Palantir, Stratford, firms like uh, the Flynn's, the Flynn's Intel Group, uh, White Canvas, firms that we looked into years ago, which turned ended up being involved by the FBI's own admission in the 2016 election shenanigans. Uh, they're still able to operate, you know, with impunity because, yeah, the, 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 the people who have been right about these groups have been marginalized and the people who have aided them secretly or overtly sometimes, uh, they have gone on to do great, great things, uh, you know, at the major outlets. One of the important things that that comes out of this for for, you know, let's say your casual political observer is that it really does explode the mythology that Trump and the circles around Trump in some way emerged in opposition to these corrupt institutions at the center of, you know, state power and so forth, that they are somehow these like, you know, renegades outside of the control of the system, right? When in fact, if you know something about the history, and obviously as you who has participated in this history, you know all of these motherfuckers are connected to the worst elements of the state and have been from the very beginning. Yeah, and and that's that wasn't the frustrating thing about getting out of prison in November 2016. It's a terrible time to get out of prison. Uh, is that yeah, it was it was seeing who expected me to be supporting Trump for some reason. Uh, because, you know, obviously a number of people were taken in, including Assange to some degree, were taken in by this idea that Trump uh that Trump was going to be a reformer in any meaningful sense of anything. You know, uh, they trust, you know, it's it just like the only person Stalin ever trusted was Hitler. You know, 
was the only person that Stalin ever like put his hand, like his hand was Hitler. That, that's just a fact. Uh, Assange, the only person he ever really trusted was Trump. And, uh, you know, that obviously did not work out for the transparency community, for the whistleblowing community uh, whatsoever. Uh, that should have been pretty fucking obvious way back then because of, again, prior statements Trump had made, um, Trump's history as an individual. Um, this was not a horse to back, even, even, if, even if we set aside the other moral calculus involved. But anyway, what happened happened. Uh, and yeah, and, and, and yet that's the other, the other unfortunate thing about this is, is as a result of Trump, in, in this great contest, which had to be fought between, between you know, just like in World War II, you know, two very, very, uh, uh, two factions, uh, both with severe sins behind them, both the establishment, you know, Clintonians versus the Trumps and all that. The establishment Clintonians had to be, unfortunately, um, the bulwark against this much worse thing. And so to fight this much worse thing, or even to criticize this much worse thing, is to be, you know, in many people's eyes, associated with the establishment. The situation, the same situation George Orwell was in after years of opposing the empire, appear, you know, after years of, uh, you know, despising Churchill, uh, suddenly something else rises to the east. And, so, and, that, and that thing is seen by many naive people as uh, the answer to the empire and the answer to capitalism and all that. Uh, and suddenly Orwell's in a position where he has to go on the BBC and explain, look, this is not the right time to dismantle this part of the empire. This is not the right time to, to uh, continue our, our, you know, conflict against Churchill and the King and, 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 uh, and renter rentiers and, and people who, who earn 500, you know, pounds a month on, uh, on, on, on their, uh, Indian plantations. Uh, there is a certain threat right now that we have to fight. And also this other alternative, the Soviet union that you're pointing to, you know, this also is flawed. It's also not the answer, you know, um, that puts Orwell in a difficult situation. It means that he is, you know, uh, he's up against these currents whereby you want to choose a side. Um, and it's not fun for people to have to refrain from choosing a side, to be able to say, look, this, you know, both these sides are flawed. One of them is definitely worse. Let's fight, you know, let's oppose that. I guess what I'm saying is that um, it's been disappointing. Uh, 2011, 2010, 2012, uh, WikiLeaks was something you could attach to and endorse and fight for and feel... Uh, both that it was going to be effective, it was going to make a mark, and also that it was moral to do so. Uh, it's unfortunate how that changed over the years to come, mostly while I was in prison. Um, and it's unfortunate how hard it is to learn lessons from these incidents. Uh, sorry, I'm just, I'm just sort of, I'm, I'm kind of ruminating uh, on the fly here. Uh, No, I think that's important, and it and it dovetails with a number of other issues that we have seen over the last several years. One of the things that has always really pissed me off since uh, 2016 is both sides of the narrative about so-called RussiaGate, right? Because on the one hand, you have these mouth-frothing liberals on MSNBC who just grasp at straws on a nightly basis for several years over the issue of Russia and Russian meddling and Trump and all of that other stuff. But even more infuriating, for my purposes at least, are the so-called leftists who would go up there every single day tweeting and speaking and otherwise about how Russiagate's completely a hoax. There's nothing to see here, absolutely nothing to pay attention to when the, the truth of the matter is these people didn't know the first thing about any of it. They didn't have access to any of the information. They didn't know anything about anything that went down. Um, they certainly weren't personally involved in any of it. And so what what I'm what I'm getting at here is that in trying to understand everything that has happened since 2016 and especially the sort of discourse on the left and among activists, you have to really begin to realize that so much of the so-called alternative media is honestly disinformation. Absolutely. 
and and that's a perfect example uh, situation. I mean that there is there seems to be no space. You know, Nick uh, Henry Kissinger once wrote about Nixon uh, that with him, uh, words were like billiard balls. Uh, it wasn't about where you where the ball was heading. It was about what ball it was going to hit, and where that ball would head. Uh, and he used it in different contexts than this, but I thought it really does illustrate kind of the problem of the last, let's say, particular five years, six years uh, in the U.S. in U.S. Uh, uh, rhetoric. You know, if I sit here and say, yes, the Russians have spies, obviously, they've always had spies. They make very good use of their spies. They make very good information. They invented a lot of this stuff. And yes, they absolutely use these around the world. Uh, there's a certain kind of person who will decide that I'm uh going to go, that I'm going to go jack off of the Democratic Party in, in, in the bathroom in a second, uh, or over MSNBC, or, or that I'm a secret MSNBC plant, or CIA, whatever, because it's inconceivable, inconceivable to a certain kind of person that you can hate two things, you know. Um, and if I were to say, yeah, the rush, the U.S. has a long history of lying about this shit, you know, uh, long and recent history of lying about this shit and the FBI cannot be trusted except in very small avenues when it happens to have the facts, you know, as they need to be. Um, the FBI can't be trusted. Uh, Mueller cannot be trusted. Mueller has too much to lose from actually revealing the extent of the 2016 operations because he defended. Anyway, then, you know, then I'm working for the Russians and you got Louise Mintz tweeting at you and saying, how much is Russia paying you? You know, kind of, you know, uh, I was investigated as a Russian agent by the FBI between it, starting at least in 2011 and probably earlier as early as 2010, uh, and that that investigation was going on at least as late as 2013. Uh, some people were interviewed in, in Delaware, people who barely knew me, uh, who had written internet comments to the effect that I was perhaps working for the Russians. Were interviewed uh, personally by uh, national security clearance FBI agents. I hate Russia. I've always hated Russia, and some of my articles, you know, my articles 10 years ago, um, when I was first writing with the same outlet as Michael Hastings, uh, were about the FSB and the Ryazan bombings and all that, and Putin. Uh, so. And those would be the bombings in the city of Ryazan, which were tied to Russian intelligence, which yeah, at yeah. that time, it, uh, you know, it was not clear whether they were sort of false flags or whatever, but in, in hindsight, it's known. They arrested what turned out to be several FSB agents in the apartments, so in the basement apartments that had been rented two months before the bombings had started. It was the same, it was hexagen, the same bombing. It was, it was one of those. It's one of the false flag attacks. Uh, one of those ones that really are false flag attacks. Uh, it's one of the ones that the, the U.S. acknowledge. You know, oftentimes speak, speaking of all this, there's there is a pseudo mainstream, a pseudo establishment that uh, thinks the term false flag is something Alex Jones made up. You know, it doesn't exist. Except now, of course, because now we're talking about the false flags that the Russians might set off in Ukraine. Now suddenly, it's it's uh, it is. You know, it, it, this is this is what we, this is what we're referring to. This is this. It, there is there is. You know, I don't like to use the term Orwellian because every fifth grader uses it, but it, it this is very much to the point of what was happening in World War II and the propaganda in the 30s and in, in uh, 1994. Uh, is this this amaze this really frightening shifting of of what is true what can be true and what cannot be true. And uh, it makes, yeah, it makes discourse impossible. It, ma it makes serious discourse impossible. Uh, and it makes it very, very difficult for, uh, for those who need to have an assessment of the world around us, uh, makes it very hard for them to know where to go for that discourse. Um, yeah, it's, it's a moral, I mean, it's, it's just a wholesale moral failure uh, that's behind every other failure, in my opinion. Um, with just a couple of minutes remaining, uh, is there, is there anything that, um, you know, authentic journalists and those who really believe in authentic journalism and activism, is there anything that we can do, you think, to turn this around or what are some of the things that we could do to turn this around? I mean, obviously talking about it openly and acknowledging who did what when and where they are now and what positions of power and influence they have now is important. Um, what else would you suggest? Say we have, uh, and I'm sure we do, have some younger journalists who found Counterpunch in whatever way they found it and are listening to us. What 
knowledge or wisdom would you want to share with them given your experiences and the fucking shambles of a world that we live in currently? Um, you know, I hate to say this, uh, and I wouldn't have said it up until about a year ago, but, uh, of the things that I've tried and, 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 uh, tried to, to, uh, build up in terms of partial solutions, you know, uh, I just don't know, uh, I don't think any of them are, are worthwhile, worth doing. Uh, there's, there's very, very narrow methods by which one can really overcome this omerta of silence that exists within uh, the press as it is. It's very hard to force the press to acknowledge there's a problem with the press. Um, this is even true when you're talking about, there's, oh, here's a guy at one outlet. You know, if you go to another outlet, like, look, this guy's done something wrong. Here, do you want to? on this, you'd be surprised at how hard it is to get that even accomplished. The press has decided gradually, unconsciously, uh, whether it be because individuals are careerists or individuals are something else, they have decided collectively, to the extent that any population can decide anything, that they are not going to regulate their own behavior, that they are not going to take any steps, any measures whatsoever to prevent themselves from being infiltrated effectively, knowingly or unknowingly, uh, by any number of, of, of criminal deleterious entities. Uh, the New York Times does not care uh, about those of its uh, reporters and bureau chiefs who have been caught working directly with Stratford, for one of the firms I went to prison over, uh, or Palantir. Uh, the Washington Post does not care that they're, the guy they just put on charge of their uh, cybersecurity uh, research, Joseph Min, uh, you know, has, has been caught uh, engaging in illicit uh, financial deals with firms like H.P. Gary, and then written about H.P. Gary in glowing terms. They do not care, and their colleagues do not care. And other journalists you'll see out there who sometimes do good work, and you look at them and say, oh, maybe this will work. 99% of those people uh, are not going to help you if you come to them and say, hey, this is really a serious situation. This guy works for this company, which is a massive threat to democracy, as you know. Here are documents showing it. What can we do? 99% of the people will do nothing. They will do absolutely nothing. So quite frankly, uh, the reason, one of the reasons I've been kind of quieter, quiet relatively in the last year or so is because I think there's only two real options if we, if we care about anything, if anything is worth doing. And one is the one I'm pursuing right now, which is, you know, this, this memoirs will come out and hopefully entertain people enough that they'll, uh, will be unable to ignore the things with, within the book about certain of these individuals, Joseph Min, um, other journalists, you know, Palantir. Uh, and two is a screenplay that we're still doing with Alex Winter, which will also hopefully be funny and amusing enough uh, and will be made. Uh, and also include these poison pills, these the, 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 the proverbial pill in the dog's peanut butter, uh, sufficient to cause a real reaction, a conversation, something to, to cause some scenario in which it starts, stops making sense for the New York Times and Washington Post and whoever to ignore uh, the, the vastly consequential wrongdoing by the people they're putting in, in a position to run our national conversation. And ultimately, if that doesn't work, you know, in five to 10 years, um, the situation will be bad enough that uh, I think it'll be easier when we point to someone who is culpable uh to marginalize that person in some of the same ways I've been marginalized. Uh, I'll put it, I'll put it that way. We've been chatting here with Barrett Brown. Barrett Brown's an award-winning journalist, activist. His forthcoming memoir, My Glorious Defeats, will be out shortly. Uh, you should follow him on Twitter at Barrett B. Uh, we, Barrett is... I don't know, Barrett, what are you? You're a wealth of information, but more importantly, Barrett helps to put a lot of seemingly disparate pieces together into a picture that can be understood. And that's what a good journalist does. So uh, Barrett, I'm saying you're a good journalist and folks, you should follow Barrett and you should definitely get his book and support his work. Barrett, thanks for coming back to Counterpunch and chatting. Thank you very much for having me. Listeners, viewers, as always, thank you so much. We will chat again next week. Mm -hmm.